Well, this morning you, uh, you don't need to imagine that I am Peter, neither Peter Rapp or the Apostle Peter. Peter, I might have been talking about you last week, but only good things, <laughs> namely your incredible baritone radio voice. <laughs> so this morning I'm neither Peter, I'm just Dave. And this Dave likes to ride his bike to church in particular, to Boston Temple. I love riding here. It gives me time to pray and to prepare for our time together. Well, I just like riding my bike. I love riding. I love the feel. I love the mechanical advantage you get on a bike. (laughs) Even if it's cold, if if you dress right. Um, And I love the aerodynamical advantage you can get if you ride with somebody and you do something called drafting. So drafting is this magical thing you can do when, say, you're riding with somebody and you soon realize they're a lot fitter and faster than you. (laughs) And if you let things go, they're just going to ride off to the distance, in the distance, and you're going to fall into despair. (laughs) Unless you do something called drafting. Drafting is when you can pull up right behind a cyclist, a fellow cyclist, a lead rider, and you let this person break the wind for you, break that air resistance for you. So like if you were out on Friday, either walking or riding your bike, it was a lot of air resistance. I wish I had a lead rider. But you let them break that wind resistance, that air resistance for you. And then that airflow goes over them and creates this incredible air pocket behind them where there's less pressure. And if you are there drafting, it requires less energy from you to ride. You can't, you can't go too far back. You can't do, go too far to the side. You've got to be right there in that sweet spot. It's also called slipstreaming because you... You slip into this place in order to take advantage of this air streaming effect. And you can save up to 30% of your energy doing this. It's really helpful. It enables you to, to keep up with someone who's faster, fitter, maybe just more ambitious than you on a bike ride. It's magical. Of course, ducks and geese do this. Pelicans, even swans do this. It's an incredible thing to see when swans do this. Uh, And they've been doing this, of course, long before cyclists. Both scenarios, what you need for this to work is that lead rider, that lead bird that's willing and able to confront that wind resistance for you. A lead who also directs you, right? They they go. You don't need to know how to get where you're going. You just follow their lead. They direct you in the right way. They take the right turns. You just have to follow. So this morning, I'm going to ask you again to use your imagination and to imagine Jesus as something like a lead rider, a lead bird, or better, the lead human for humanity, who who takes the full force of every resistance in this world that comes against us who directs us, who turns us around and leads us back to the Father in his new humanity that we see displayed here in our passage. 
First of all, just a few words about Lent. We're now in the season of Lent. This is the first Sunday of Lent. And this is a season that you can see as this deliberate 40-day march through the wilderness. But more than that, it's a, a season when we walk. We're not, we're not cycling here. We're walking slowly in the shadow of Christ's own 40-day trial in the wilderness where he was fasting, he's depleted, he's battling with the devil, and he's turning from temptation. It's also a season that mirrors the, the early Christians' rigorous preparation for baptism, that rite of death and new birth in Christ. And therefore, it's also a, a season of preparation, a path to Easter, the promise of resurrection in Christ. It's a season when marked by ash, we embrace our mortality and our redemption in the cross of Christ. Practically, it's also a time when we do things like special intense prayer and fasting and almsgiving and renewing scripture reading Fasting, when we strip away life's excesses to reorient ourselves. To pause, to slow down enough to consider where, where have we wandered in our lives? In order to repent. Repent is a, a core practice of Lent, where a lot of this is focused. Repent. To turn from those sins, those idols that have turned us in on ourselves, that have poisoned us and corrupted us, that, has, that have left us dying, really, of hunger and thirst spiritually in our souls. Lent is a time to consider that, to slow down enough to see where that is happening in our lives and to repent, to Turn from that to the one who truly satisfies, as Anna said in her Ash Wednesday service. In her Ash Wednesday service, to turn, to repent from that, to turn to the, the new lead human for humanity. This one who, who gives us this draft we can take advantage of, this spiritual draft, who directs us, who leads us who turns us from sin back to the Father in his new humanity that he displayed here, a new way of being in the world. So to the follow the beloved through the desert in this way, that's really what Lent is about. But before we go into the wilderness and follow him there, first let's behold him in baptism. That's where our passion starts. So our, our gospel passage in Mark, it starts with Jesus being baptized in the Jordan, the Jordan River, by John's baptism. And what was John's baptism? It was this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Again, as Anna pointed out on Wednesday, it's not that Jesus needed to repent. It's not that he needed to be forgiven. But he wanted to so identify with us 
He enters these waters. He wanted to fulfill all righteousness, as he said to John. So, he does this, and as we see, he's going to be bringing something new to baptism. As he does, he makes all things new, even baptism. And this is something that the world has never seen before, this baptism. Now, this time, water, it already meant something pretty profound. From the scriptures, the Jews would have known this pattern, through the waters to something good, to something new, something better. This was the pattern. This starts in the opening chapters of Genesis. The, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is hovering like a bird over the watery chaos and then calls forth from the deep the dry land and all living creatures. It's through the waters to creation. Then the fall and then the flood, a decreation, back to the watery chaos. And yet through this, the world was judged. It was purged. And again, the, the Spirit of God is hovering, brooding over the waters, and the waters recede, and we have a renewed creation. It's through the waters, through to a new creation, a renewed creation. Moving on in history, the people of God, they're running from their oppressors in Egypt, and they come up against the Red Sea. And then the sea parts, and the people of God walk through and the oppressors get swallowed up. It's through the waters to freedom. Then the people of God come to the waters of Jordan. And on the other side is the promised land. Again, the waters part. The people walk through. It's through the waters to the promised land. Then transgression and ruin follow in greater and greater measure. Until a figure emerges from the waters of Jordan, the Son of God, the Beloved. And with him, it's going to be through the waters to something much more. For as he comes up out of the waters, it's not just that the waters part, but the heavens part. They're torn apart. And the Holy Spirit of God comes down in the form of a bird, in the form of a dove, and rests on the Son of God. And then we hear that voice, the voice we talked about last week that comes from the heart of the universe, with the words that we talked about last week. Those words, you are my beloved, you are my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Everything he is, everything he does, pleases the Father. Well, no human had ever experienced a baptism like this before. Right? No human had ever had anything like this. This kind of Mount of Transfiguration overlap, intersection of heaven and earth, time and eternity. This kind of renewal of creation and of Eden this kind of intimacy with the Father in the Spirit, this kind of beloved humanity on the earth. With Jesus, it's through the waters to something much more. Jesus had this in eternity, right? 
Jesus knew this intimacy with the Father for time out of mind in eternity. But here he is now experiencing this as one of us in our flesh on the earth. It's a new thing. No human had ever experienced this kind of thing before. And here he is. He's not just any human. He's the new lead human. He's the new Adam. He's leading us into what we were meant to be all along. This is what God intended for us to share in, to participate in. We follow him and he directs us. He leads us. He turns us around back to the Father, into that new humanity God always intended for us. The story goes on, and he, he emerges from these waters of baptism led by this same spirit who he's baptized in right into the wilderness. So you see here, uh, notice a pattern here similar to the Mount of Transfiguration. What happens there, he, he has this intense affirmation of the Father, and from there he immediately goes down the mountain into the dark valley and encounters and heals a demon-possessed man. See that movement. From here, he comes out of the blissful baptism and immediately he goes into the desolate wilderness to face head-on every resistance to God, every temptation from the evil one as one of us, for us, as the new lead human to turn us around back to God. And yet he does this here, not in strength, like what we see in the Mount of Transfiguration, but in weakness, right? He's depleted. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's hungry, though, most of all for God's word. So he does this. He leads us in this way through every resistance in the wilderness. Through every weakness we might feel. He leads us there, sharing with us that that hunger for God's word and righteousness. So first we behold the beloved in baptism in the wilderness as the pioneer and perfecter of our faith and our humanity. And then we follow the beloved. And we slip into that magical space right behind him where the resistance there is much less for us, wherever we follow him, where everything has already been resisted and overcome in him. We get to share in that. When I first sensed the call to come to God, it was a big struggle for me. I was overwhelmed. Uh, It was too much. I wanted to repent. I wanted to turn from these sins from just living for myself and to live for God. But it, it was like, I imagined it like this, there's this pyramid. And the whole world was on one side of the pyramid. And somehow it felt like to repent for me meant like I had to like lift up the world and over this pyramid and switch it over to the other side. And I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. But then I heard the good news of the Beloved. I didn't have to, because he had done that. (laughs) He had switched the world over. 
taken away the sin of the world. All I needed to do was get behind him and follow him. Let him do the switching, moving the world. I just follow him, and I just step over the pyramid. <laughs> With him, the pyramid's little. It's like down by your knees. Or it's like Malcolm Geist said in his poem, all my ills diminish and recede to their true size in Jesus. Where Jesus has gone, where Jesus goes, where we follow him, it's easier to go. There's less resistance for us. And this can be true on a personal level. It can be also true on a cultural level. So we've talked before about Tom Holland's historical observations through the centuries, how modern values like caring for the vulnerable have been significantly influenced by the life and the teaching of Jesus. In contrast to, say, like, values held by Roman, the Roman, ancient Roman civilization of the valorization of power over the vulnerable at the expense of the vulnerable. But instead, for somehow, we've got this value in modern times, this care for the vulnerable, the sick, those who lack resources in things like our healthcare and education and welfare systems. Well, Holland sees you can trace this back, this value back to the life and the teaching of Jesus. Jesus created a slipstream, in a sense, for this way of thinking, this way of acting. It makes it easier for us to think and act along these ways than it did before Jesus was on the scene. People don't realize this. That's why I love that Holland is, is emphasizing this for people. They don't know how much Jesus made this possible and how many other drafts Jesus has made for us that we can come into through the wilderness, through temptation, through the practices of Lent that we might want to give ourselves to. As we give ourselves and we think about prayer and fasting and almsgiving and scripture reading, repentance that we need to do, at times it can feel like that world, you got to push over the pyramid. But with, with Jesus, you can just follow him and let him do that. You just step over. He's the one who switches it over. He's the one who breaks every resistance for us. The other morning, I woke up, I was still in bed, and I just started feeling overwhelmed. I started thinking about all the things I needed to attend to, all the things I had left Undone, as we confess every week. All the things I needed to change in my life. And when I thought about that, I didn't want to get out of bed. <laughs> I had no motivation. I was overwhelmed. But then I started to think about how Jesus does the greater work in all of these things. And that encouraged me. And I got up. And encouraged me to get up. And as I continued to think and pray along those lines, I suddenly noticed I was noticing Jesus more in my day. I was noticing his correction, his direction, his draft in all the tasks of my day. He does the greater work. And best of all, he leads us and he turns us back to God, Father. One of the grants we received recently was the Vital Worship Grant. 
and which this is a grant that supports creative and artistic work in our community of faith. And one of the first, uh, pe the first piece, in fact, that we commissioned is a song, a song that Daniel has written. It's called Turn Us Around, which if you're here for Ash Wednesday, we played it when we were receiving our ashes. Basically, the, the lyrics basically come from Psalm 80, which was a text during Advent. And uh, if you want a fuller understanding of Psalm 80, you can go back and listen to that. But Psalm 80 is basically, it's a communal lament. The people of God are in a bad way. And it appears because they've turned from God. Because the main refrain of the song, which is the chorus of, of Daniel's song, is turn us around and let your face shine and we will be saved. One of the, uh, the Hebrew words for the phrase turn us around is the word for repent. So another way you could translate this phrase is repent us, O God. We need that prayer. If you repent in any way, shape, or form, it's probably because somebody was praying, repent us. God, give us repentance. Grant us repentance. I like return us around, though, better than repent us. It's kind of a strange phrase, but... I was telling uh, someone recently about this, someone who goes to another church, and this church was in a bad way. And there's a lot of people in this church not acting in a Jesus-like way. They needed to repent. And I was telling her about this song, and she was like, oh man, our church needs to sing that song. <laughs> our church needs to pray that. Our church needs that. And I thought in my spirit, yes, not just your church. We need to pray that. We need to pray this. We need to pray this for ourselves, for our church, for the church, for our city. Turn us around, O oh God. And how does God answer this prayer? By helping us to behold and follow the one who turns us around. By giving us grace to better see the beloved, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith and our humanity. By giving us grace to better follow him in that aerodynamical shadow through the wilderness to the Father. By granting us an even closer following, a closer draft. By enabling us not just to follow, but to dwell in the beloved. So this Lent, let us pray, turn us around, O God, and behold and follow. May it be so.